Hi everyone, welcome to Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Seen and Heard again. Um, this week we're going to talk a bit more about animal health issues. It's been covered a wee bit in recent podcasts. Um, you'll note we're doing a few podcasts lately dealing with some acute issues going into winter in New Zealand with the coronavirus, COVID-19 issue on top, the impact on processing. There's a bit of a, a feed supply demand imbalance around the country generally and particularly in some areas which are coming out of or, or, or still in, in drought. So today we're joined by Jenny Dodunsky, who I think um, a number of our listeners will, will know well or know of or have heard the name. Um, Jenny's been asked, she's written an article uh, for us. We'll fix it. There's going to be two articles. We'll put the link in the blurb. One on animal health issues for sheep. And next week we'll have the one on animal health, animal health issues for cattle and deer. So look, Jenny, welcome along to the call. You're with Totally Vets in Taumanui. Um, what's your... Your role, your job title, what do you do day to day with them? Yeah, hi, thanks, Erin. Um, I would call myself, I suppose, the senior vet there. Um, I do almost entirely production animal work. Um, I'm really lucky to be able to divide my time about half and half between um, advisory and extension work, um, but then also getting out and uh, doing farm calls and at the moment very busy uh, scanning our large herds of beef cows here and, and there's nothing better than a nice day in the yards with some cows flying down the race. It's good fun. Although in your neck of the woods, uh, a nice day out might be pouring with rain by the sounds of it. It's still um, fairly dry. Your Western Bay's Lake Taupo. Yeah, that's where I live. Um, and yes, we are very dry here. Um, over the hill um, in Tomaranui, they've had a little bit more rain, but I um, don't think anyone's very happy for feed and certainly uh, identifying those dry cows and, and splitting uh, cows into early and late calves is more important than ever this year. Yeah, and they're not like, um, you know, where I am in the South Island, the hill country, there's still significant numbers of, of beef cows, but they're they're not as, as frequent as they, or as common as they used to be. It's interesting to hear there's a lot in your part of the world. How's the um, how's the scanning going? I guess, you know, has, have they been impacted significantly by the, by the dry? Oh, I always hate answering that question because <laughs> there's so many farm factors that go into yeah. it, but I would say in general that the December mated cows um, in general had good results, um, but the impact of that ongoing dry into January is, is probably showing a little bit in some of the January mated herds, um, both in the condition and, um, and in the dry rates. But yeah, ball management is just so important. And yeah, giving people averages when the <laughs> variety in ball management is so massive, I hate doing it. Oh, that's good. And I think people will see when we get into the article too, you talk about people actually doing their own measuring and having a look at things, which is a, a good point. But um, even before we get on to that, what, so you're, you're keeping yourself busy with a bit of uh, beef scanning and that. I mean, what's the impact been of the lockdown on, on your vets, on your vet practices? Is it, um, you're still an essential service allowed out and about, but has it had major restriction? I mean, the vets still keeping themselves busy? We are, yes, very much still an essential service and uh, because our region is in drought, um, you know, anything that we can do to help people uh, with their destocking, um, we will do. Um, so our ambulatory farm work uh, has been very busy, um, but certainly a lot of restrictions around how we manage people coming in and out of the clinic and what we're doing uh, for small animals yeah. and the like. Um, but and, and obviously attending to whatever emergencies come along. Um, yeah, yeah. There's been certainly debate in the in the veterinary profession about what should and shouldn't be essential. But yeah, we've taken the attitude that 
our clients come first and whatever we can do to help them, um, you know, get their feed demand and supply, as you say, right, going into winter, we will do. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, some of the, the early red meat profit partnership work, oh, and, and I think it's other bits of work have shown it, you know, how vets are seen as a trusted advisor. So it's not just the treating animal health issues, surgeries, those sorts of things. Um, farmers get a lot of advice from from vets. Is that something, you know, with your large animal vets in particular, you see more and more of them, I know you, you said you do quite a bit of it, but uh, are most of your vets getting into that field, providing sort of extension, tech transfer work? Oh. It's an it's an eternal challenge for our yeah. profession. Um, it really is. That's probably the subject of another whole podcast. But yes, I think there's um you know there's more and more places to access information and um, more you know initiatives. I think the um, the action networks have been such a good way uh, for vets who might have been wanting to dip their toe into mm. that water to um, to get into it and and get a feel for it and and the the stuff that you soak up from the expert speakers that you have at those. Events and so on is just so valuable to anybody who's wanting to get into um, helping farmers at a system level instead of yeah. just you know copper deficiency or you know, <laughs> EVD or you know because all those things are just icing on the cake like it, you've got to get your whole system right and and that's yeah. a whole nother set of skills. Yeah, we're getting a wee bit off topic, but it's interesting stuff to talk about. And I think our listeners will be. So, uh, you know, you, your vet's been through like the RNPP facilitator training and those sorts of things as well. Correct, yes. Yep. Oh, good. All right. Hey, look, we probably should. Uh, I did say this was probably going to be a short podcast, and we've got part two with you next week on cattle and deer. But look, this week um, we're going to talk about sheep, uh, animal health issues. Um, Jenny's article is online on the Beef and Land New Zealand Knowledge Hub. It'll be there in the, in the blurb of this podcast if you have a look down, and we're pushing it out in our various media as well through eDiary, um, our social media channels. Um, and it's a really uh, congratulations, Jeanette. It's a really good article. It's nice and neat and succinct. Um, you focused on some key things. So we're going to just talk through those in order, keep it pretty simple. Your first um, section, you're talking about lambs still on farm, which for some right around the country, there's more of those than usual because of you know the limitations in processing and the, the flow on effects to store sales and sale yard sales and that sort of thing. Um, internal parasites and the change in the type of internal parasite that's out there and affecting them is the first thing you talk about. So do you want to expand on that a wee bit? Yeah, and, you know, the people in the bottom half of the South Island will, will probably read this and go, what? <laughs> um, because I talk, talk about Barber's problem. Yeah. Um, but, you know, certainly over most of the North Island and the, and the top part of the South Island, you know, people get very preoccupied with um, making sure that Barber's pollworm isn't uh-huh. impacting production over the summer and, and early autumn. Um, but as often as soon as those autumn rains come, and also if you have had a wet summer, um, the other worm, the black scale worm, Trichostrongolus, um, can predominate very, very quickly. Um, and we see it every year where people are, are on some sort of drench program where they're focused on barber's pole um, and not thinking about what else might be around the corner. And then you start getting these scoury lambs looking awful at about four weeks after a drench if contamination's high on the pasture and, and that's trikes and you've got to be really aware of that because none of the drenches that give you uh, persistent protection against barber's pole do the same for trikes so mm-hmm. it can come in quite quickly um, yeah so that's really one to be aware of and you're much better to be uh, using a combination drench to deal with that one than say just moxidectin if people are using that mm-hmm. so 
none of the drenches that give persistent protection to barber's pole give it to trikes. Uh, I just want to clarify that. Are there any drenches that give persistent protection against trichostrongolus? There's a few days of persistency okay. with some of, with some of the mectin, but not enough not enough to yep. be practically useful. Um, and the only other one which I don't really want to push would be the long-acting moxidectin injections, um, yep. which obviously you know they give long-acting protection against everything. But again, um, they favour trikes because they stop working against trikes much much quicker than they do yep. against any of the other species. And that's another thing we see <laughs> every autumn is, is people who've given a product like that to hoggets, and then they start looking awful after about six weeks, and it's because the trikes have come back in. Yet people were expecting a hundred days protection out of them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd much rather see those issues dealt with via management and uh, good thinking than just shoving some long acting product into them. And it's coming back to your point about averaging in a way. It's, yeah, not all worms are the same. So you're getting different responses from the same product by the different species. Um, yeah, good point. You talk there about don't try to extend drench intervals. So, um, are you recommending, you know, people on a regular, I think 28 days is the wormwise recommendation. Is that what you're talking or, or we may need to be shorter than that for Trichostrongolus? I would never go shorter than that. Okay. Um, and if you're in a situation where you think you need to go shorter than that, then you really need to look at your system. Yeah. Um, so I'm very much talking about lambs on an ordinary 28-day program where they're on contaminated hill country pasture that's not some kind of special forage or you know autumn new grass or, yep. or something like that because on those cleaner feeds it's really important that you do look at some way of extending your drench intervals so that you're not just constantly drenching on clean feed mm -hmm. um, but on, on ordinary sheep pasture now's probably not the time to be extending those drench intervals because of the trike issue excuse me yeah Yep, so still the, the, the standard, the 28-day recommendation, isn't it, for drenched oil, I think? Yeah. Yes. But, um, again, not just sticking to a blanket recommendation, um, you, as a as a rule, people should do a drench check. You know, that's uh, some individual faecal egg counts 10 days after a, after a drench. Yeah, look, drench checks are a really cheap and easy way of just checking how you're travelling. And, um, you know, we've alluded to that, already talking about the change of species between, say, barber's pole and trikes at this time of the year. Um, but being aware that different worm species predominate at different times of the year makes it important to do your drench checks at different mm -hmm. times of the year as well. Like a, a standard recommendation might be to, at your weaning drench, do a drench check and make sure your drench is working. Well, that's cool. Um, but at that time of the year, certainly in our patch, Ostatagia will be predominant. We probably there'll be a few barbers pole, but not many, and probably very little trikes. Um, and as I allude to in that article, we are now seeing cases of triple resistant trikes. Uh -huh. That is trikes that are surviving the triple drench, um, which by just doing a drench check, say at weaning, you know, November, December or whatever, you probably won't pick that up. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, we're certainly picking up leakage out of the combination drenches um, at this time of the year when those trikes are predominant. So it's, it's something to, yeah, have a look at on your own place. So, and for those that, I mean, drench check's one of those things that's reasonably simple. It doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what the problem is, but it helps you identify the problem. Just you're talking faecal egg counts, how long after drenching, how many individuals and how do you do them? It's not a bulk sample. 
No, not a bulk sample. Um, seven to 10 days or so, even out to 12 days um, after your routine drench, um, all you need is um, 10 or so fresh faecal samples that you've seen come out the back end of a lamb. Um, don't pick them up out of the paddock at midday and think because they feel warm that they've come out the back end of a lamb. Um, <laughs> The, the rule is if you put them in the container and they make steam, um, then they are fresh and that will be okay and we'll be able to see the eggs. If you just pick up poos out of the paddock that seem warm, um, they may have just been warmed by the sun and the eggs may have already hatched. So it's really mm -hmm. important to get fresh samples. Um, the reason I say not to do composite samples is if you take 10 samples from some lambs that you've drenched and it happens that one's been missed or spat the drench out yeah. and has a very high egg count, it may make the composite sample look like there's leakage out of the drench when in fact it's just one very high individual. Um, so whenever we are testing the performance of drenches, we would recommend individual samples so that we can get around that issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. Um, there are, a drench check may show unexpected presence of, of internal parasite eggs it's not necessarily a, a resistance issue there's other issues like say an individual animal didn't got missed um drench gun issues things like that it's just telling you that there is a problem not necessarily the cause of that problem is that right absolutely and yeah. then you know where we go and then look at that prop properly in the next season by doing a faecal egg count reduction test that's when we tease that out and yep. you're right you know it, it's not always resistance but uh, it's a cliche but knowledge is power and you rather than sort of it bothering you in the back of your mind all the time um get it looked at properly and um and deal with it <laughs> yeah it's um because you've been involved in some of the monitor farm programs and things haven't you in your extension work Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> for a long yeah. time. <laughs> it's that old, I think it's, I've got one of the old books here and it's printed on the cover. If you don't measure it, you can't manage it. It was the whole sort of um, principle behind monitor farms and yet we still find ourselves repeating it till we're blue in the face these days. Um, and the point with drench resistance too is that you will not see uh, obvious um, visual signs of of lambs in particular not um, responding to a drench until you've got about 50% of your worm population resistant. Um, and that's a not a good place to be. Um, so we're much, much better at, at uh, finding this out early on. And then we've got heaps more options to manage it um, than waiting until you can see a problem. I'm sure everybody's heard that before too, but I just <laughs> had to say it. It's worth repeating. Um, yeah, as adults, we tend to need to hear things a few times, and at least that's what my kids tell me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to link to the, and we're, Jenny and I were talking off here that we've both got um, sort of pre-teen and teenage kids at home at the moment, so we're dealing with um, learning to be a teacher and, and home education and learning lots of interesting things about our kids as well, I think. But That's, um, that's why a podcast good, because you can't see me tearing my hair. <laughs> yeah, and all the lists, as we were saying, lists on the wall of the, the great plans for what was going to happen during the day that promptly went out the window as, <laughs> as soon as it actually happened. Hey, I'll, I'll link in the blurb as well to some of the wormwise material that's got more information on internal parasite stuff. But you mentioned a, a reduction test, a faecal egg count reduction test, which is the you know the gold standard for identifying drench resistance. I mean, is it a with the we've had a an abnormal season in lots of parts of the country? Is that a good good season to do a an faecal egg count reduction test, or are we too late into the year? 
Uh, we're definitely too late into the year um, because of the issue that we've already talked about with the almost all of the wound population now probably yeah. being trikes. Um, but in saying that, because so many lambs have been carried over the autumn on many properties, the level of worm contamination in the spring is going to be really high this year. Mm -hmm. um, so it will be a good spring to do a reduction test because you shouldn't have too many problems getting egg counts up in the spring. There's always a silver lining. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, look, we might talk more about that in the spring. But one of the things you do mention you can do at the moment is a knockout drench. And look, I've, I've heard this terminology around a wee bit, um, but it always sort of um, raises a few eyebrows. What's a knockout drench? How do you do it? Yeah, so a knockout drench is a drench right towards the end of your lamb drenching season, for want of a better word, on a, on a breeding farm. Uh, where you may have used a some sort of combination drench as your routine drench um, throughout the season at, at your 28-day intervals. Um, and towards the end of that, it is entirely possible that lambs that have come all the way through, i.e. your replacement new lambs or your other rats and mice that haven't gone yet, um, have got some worms in them that have survived um that routine drench each time and are laying eggs and contaminating your pastures with resistant worms. Um, and if those are trikes, uh, trikes can live in the sheep for um, more than 100 days. They're not a, a short-lived thing at all. So um, it is a good idea not to take a 100-day long population of resistant worms all the way through your winter and into your spring um, in, say, your replacement ewe lambs. So the strategy here is to, and depending on your farm system, maybe April, May, um, switch out that um, routine combination drench for something entirely different uh, that the worms on your farm won't have seen before or, or won't have seen very often at all. Um, so really in New Zealand, the only uh, drenches that fit that bill are those two novel ones, uh, Zolvix or StarTech. And I can all see you cringing there thinking mm -hmm. about the cost. Um, but hopefully by now you are down to sort of replacement ewe lamb numbers or not much more. Um, and that has been shown. Um, it's not just something we made up. Um, Ag Research have done work to validate um, that this approach combined with the other things we know about reducing drainage resistance um, is a really powerful way of uh, keeping the efficacy of your drenches up, um, providing that you're using drenches that are reasonably efficacious to begin with. So you're just knocking out that wee-resistant population that might be sitting there. Um, then the, your lambs go into the winter, um, not contaminating your ground with resistant parasites. Um, and hopefully by sort of May, June, July anyway, your lambs are starting to have their own immunity to worms, which starts to develop. Um, so less drenching required. And, and um, yeah, we've cleaned them out with a knockout drench and away they go. So that's the theory. I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's sort of, I think it, it, technically it is in the term. And when you talk about the, the novel actives, I guess it makes it a wee bit clearer. And you're not, I mean, um, yeah, okay, they may be more expensive. You're not talking about, the process of them having to become a regular part of the drenching system. It might be once a year you're using those um, in your system. So hopefully, yeah, minute, rest yeah. of the year using the, the, the yeah, more, absolutely. more generics. Mm. And it, it would concern me that anybody was using those in a big way regularly in their system without very good advice, um, because if you've got to that point, mm. um, 
and feel that you need to use those uh, without some good advice, um, I'd be a bit worried. So, yeah, that's a very clear role for those trenches is, is that knockout role. All right. Look, um, as I said, I'll link to some of the um, Wormwise resources in the blurb, which are sort of um, a lot of the background to what Ginny was talking about there. But let's move on to the, the second part of your article, which was around uh, replacement ULAMs. Um, for some people, I think the decision may have been made by their season, but there's others still weighing up whether they're going to put the RAM with some or all of their, their U hoggets. Um, what what are your, your key recommendations there, Jenny? What are you telling farmers the, the must-dos before they, uh, or, or if they're weighing up um, making the U hoggets? Yeah, look, I just think it's an absolute no-brainer uh, with U hoggets. Um, there is that much information out there now about the performance of them um, that you should be absolutely ruthless with your cut-off weights um, and absolutely over 40 kilos. It doesn't matter what breed you are. Um, Kate Griffiths, um, who's finished a PhD at Massey um, on wastage and commercial ewe flocks, um, she's a fantastic speaker. And if you've got an action network group looking at ewe performance, I would absolutely recommend getting her to come and talk to you. Um, her work has shown that for every kilo um, that a ewe hogget gains between scanning and set stocking, so that's scanning and set stocking, that's that last bit mm -hmm. of winter, every kilo that they gain, um, they are 10% less likely to be wet dry. Um, it's an absolutely almost linear relationship. Um, the heavier you can have your ewe hoggets when they lamb, um, the better lamb survival you'll get and also obviously just a much better animal to go as a replacement into your flock. Um, so, yeah, ruthless with your cut-off weight and then make absolutely damn sure that you've got a really good plan for feeding them all the way through. Um, they should be gaining something in the range of 130 to 150 grams a day. Um, and that's a pretty big hogget by the time she yeah. gets to lambing, but we've really got to lift our lift our bar on that one because the, the data is so clear on that, that a big a big ewe hogget performs so much better. And I want to, uh, it's going to be a big hogger because the key point there is your cutoff weight is not the mob average. You're talking individuals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We're not, so, yeah, we're not talking averages. Yeah. Not um, either, the mob's made 40 and we'll make them. It's every individual that meets the ram should be at least 40 kilos, which means their average is probably going to be closer to what the 43, 44 is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and farms I work with, the, the higher they set that bar, the, the performance just continues to go up, um, you know, within reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah. for most, you know, most commercial hill country farms, I don't think you can set your hobbit mating weight too high, to be honest. Yeah. And it'll make that, or everything else you talk about easier, you know, the bigger she is, the better thrift she is, she's going to make that cut off weight and therefore it'll be easier in turn to get her to put on the 130, 150 grams a day that, that you recommend over the over the winter. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all the talk about um, hoggets getting too big or too fat or whatever and, and having lambing problems, um, the, the, it's no different to heifers. You grow that mum out around that baby. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously don't want them over fat, but I mean, I, I can't speak for, say, Southland, but certainly in, you know, where I work in the North Island, that it just does not happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and lambing problems and hoggets are generally because the hoggets are undergrown. Yeah. No, it's not the size of the lamb, it's the size of the hogget around it, as you say. Sure. So that, that's an interesting one that uh, Kate Griffith's work, and, we, and actually maybe a, a future podcast. Um, oh, we'll absolutely. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. 
because that's a really interesting. So one kilogram gained between scanning and stocking reduces the likelihood of wet dry by 10%. That, yep. um, so what are we, I mean, there's a limit. How much weight's that a, a hogger gaining? Or what, what that, that's sort of every kilo, does it? But what's she talking? An optimum would be two, three, five, ten kilos? How much? Yeah, we... so they, you know, those, the, the hoggets in her data set, I would have to go and look at it. Yep. Absolutely. But the, the hoggets in her data set, you know, by the time they're lambing, um, they are, their, their total live weight is something akin to the live weight of a, of a mature ewe um, in the flock. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so they're obviously they're still, um, you know, they're going to lose around sort of uh, eight kilos or so of weight the day that they lamb. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that when they lamb, they're still sort of around that uh, 55 um, yeah. and, and then, yeah, or, or better. Um, mm. Because so many, so many hoggets in our North Island systems, anyway, um, you know, they might weigh that mid to late fifties when they land, but you know, they lose that weight, and then they're actually a really lightweight ewe yeah. um, that's got to put on a lot of weight in the summer, and probably doesn't quite get to where she needs to be as a tooth, and that's very common in the North Island. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a decent size hog. You know, that um, it's not that long. Well. It is a while back, but you know, 55 kilo U was a good U, um, not 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 beyond living memory. So actually, trying to have your hoggets at least that plus the weight of lamb and conceptus is a is a good sized animal. And that that's, I mean, that's the thing. These figures might sound reasonably high, but that's including what's growing in cider as well. So you know, yes, correct, because yeah. it, it's too, who wants to do the maths on that? I mean, <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't want to try and correct for fetal weight and fetal. No things just just weigh the whole thing <laughs> no that's good um, i mean it's yeah she's look, I mean, on. some people listening to this will probably say <laughs> oh that's ridiculous but you know you've got to aim for the moon and and hope that you sort of get halfway there um the the main message is that we can pretty much all of us can grow our hobbits better yeah yeah no well that you know if you, you the weight you're talking in the lamb and conceptus that's and my math is probably out, but that's 50, 60 grams a day alone and that over the winter effectively. And you're, you know, so you're only talking additional to that another 70, 80 grams of well, live weight. Yeah, that yeah, you're probably right there. And, um, you know, that the weight of that, um, yeah, the weight of that um, fetus and, and placenta that really goes up, or certainly the fetus goes up exponentially at the end. Um, so you can't sort of wait to the end to try and make the gain on the mum either because yeah. she won't. It'll all go into the lamb. So it's it's having that it's having that winter feeding plan to make sure that those girls just keep gaining all winter. I did that in my head, and I'm going to get the calculator out after this podcast and realise I got it horribly wrong. But the key principles are the same. Yeah, have a good minimum weight and feed them all the way through the winter. Keep them going. Yeah, if you want to re-record it, we can always um <laughs> we can always do the maths and then come back to it so we don't we're not guessing. Because yeah, <laughs> I, no. I must admit you can cut this out, but I must admit I should have done the maths myself. <laughs> no, that's right. I'll be interested to see how many people have listened to it if they I get emails saying no, hang on, I actually worked it out and it's gonna it's this much. But anyway, the principles are the important thing. We're not here about as you say, it applies to each individual farm. So look, um, hit a minimum weight, keep them growing, and that impact. I think people. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of emphasis on growing them early in winter, but it's really interesting to see that work you mentioned about the, the importance of live white gain post-scanning, which obviously is the hardest time to do it. But 10% um, yes. <laughs> less wet dries makes a big difference to the the bottom line, the return, the effort you've put into to mating new lambs, especially in a season like this. So. I've got, I've actually got a slide of hers um, I'll send to you with that data on it so you can have a look at it if you like. Awesome, thanks. And we may be able to get that up and on in the blurb. So no promises, but I'll try. Right, 
we better keep moving. The third part, um, you're talking about the ewes, which obviously um, are still next season's production, the main, every year's production, the, the main driver. What's your, your key recommendations for ewes, Ginny? He's certainly been fielding a lot of uh, queries and discussion from people about, um, you know, how we can maximise our scanning percentage um, in an autumn like we're having here in the North Island. Um, and certainly your scanning percentage is going to set the potential for the year, um, which is really important, um, but probably equally important, if not more important, is making sure that we actually uh, capitalise on that by still having those ewes on the ground and, and lambing for us um, and getting through to weaning. Um, we know um, from work that Trevor Cook and I have done and also uh, this latest lot of work that Kate Griffiths has done, um, the figures are surprisingly similar. Um, in our work, um, ewes that were body condition score two or under, 17% uh, of them were gone by weaning. Um, that's ewes starting the winter in that body condition, so i.e. when you remove the ram, uh, ewes that are two or under um, starting the winter, 17% of them were gone. And in Kate's work, it was either 15 or 16%. Um, so those light ewes um, are such a cost to our farm systems um, and depending on your shearing pattern um, and what you do with your ewes uh, when you take the ram out, um, you may not be aware of those, um, that, they're, that they're there in the flock um, and they're going to be a really big cost and, and they may well scan with twins. Um, but um, the chances of them actually rearing a lamb and, and being there for you at the end of, of this production cycle are much, much lower than a ewe that is body condition score two and a half or preferably three or better. Um, so my advice is one thing that we can be doing this year is as soon as you take the ram out um, or even maybe prior to that, depending on the farm system, um, getting in and identifying these ewes that are two or less and just doing what you can um, to get half a condition score or a condition score on them or um, deciding that these girls are going to be a big cost um, and we maybe get rid of more of them than we normally would and we don't wait till scanning um, because they won't be any better at scanning. They'll probably be worse and, they, yeah, they'll be pregnant, um, but whether or not they're going to rear your lamb um, is, is much more of a gamble uh, than a ewe whose body condition score three or better. Um, and I do acknowledge that there will be a lot of light ewes in our flocks this year, but I think the quicker and more aggressively you can get into your flock and know who's who and what's what, um, then you are, you know, you've got the information there. Like you said, you know, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, if nothing else, it allows budgeting. Um, but hopefully, it allows some intervention to um, to lift a proportion of those ewes up to a better body condition. Yeah, we really push body condition scoring, and I mean the key is you've actually got to put your hand on them unless they're they're immediately off shears because then things become obvious and your feed budget flows that you realise your feed budget needs a look at or something. If I mean the, the ultimate outcome is the condition on the ewes, so it's not too late post mating to put that condition back on. I mean, I know we've sort of stressed having them in good condition at, at mating in some of our work, but if needs must, finding those ewes that are two or lighter and putting condition on them after mating is still going to make an impact? It will make an impact, absolutely. Um, 
the you know at worst even if you can't do that and I know you know a lot of farms in my area just will not have the feed to do that um at the very worst you can um at least identify who they are um decide who are your keepers and who are not and then at lambing um you know be able to set stock them at a lighter rate on some better country where they've got a better chance of survival um yeah there, there's lots of things you can do um uh-huh. but if you don't know who they are um then a lot of them are just going to melt into the hillsides yeah so put your hands on them um you'd be again recommending Absolutely, yeah, and even, um, you know, I did some a big lot of use for a client a couple of weeks ago, which did not have very long wool on them. I think they've been shorn maybe, they were February shorn, and, and this was sort of end of March, early April, uh-huh. um, and it was still visually, uh, the manager was really, really surprised um, at which way they were going um, on yeah. conditions for, um, and he said to me, look, I reckon I could have picked about half of those, um, but it's the other half um, yeah. that that you would have sent the wrong way. Um, so it, yeah, it's absolutely worth the investment. You can do sort of when you're going well. Um, if you're just drafting them on condition score and not doing any recording, you can do six or seven hundred an hour. Mm. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's like you say, the key thing here again is not you don't want a mob average of body condition score. We need individuals done, so you're picking out those lights that, again, you might, half of them, if you're not seeing them by eye, you need to get them, and that's physically putting your hand on them. Correct. So, um, the um, cost of that, I mean, you talked about it's shorter feed, feed's expensive, either directly buying it in or indirectly on-farm where it's limited and you've got to, to prioritise it, but I just want to go back over those figures because I think they probably might have caught a few people's ears. 15 to 17% was sort of the range between work you and Trevor have done and the work that... Kate did on dead or missing ewes that are yes. body condition score two or lighter. So it's one in six of those ewes will not be, will have, will have, when you say missing, like she might have been cold for being dry. Is that included in that? And that did include the wet dries, yes. So yep. they're not, not there at weaning. Yep. Um, so but in, in our work anyway, the vast majority of those ewes literally disappeared <laughs> um, oh, we did yeah. we, we wanted to do post-mortems this was yeah. a project we did called the life and times of tail end use we wanted to do lots of post-mortems and we did about two um because they just disappear and you know this was on commercial hill country farms so we you know we had limited ability to pick them up yeah well that's that number's um you know to be honest quite staggering when you actually and that's the thing people wouldn't see it because they're not seeing the, the dead use or they're not out there looking for them and did that, again, it comes back to mob averages. You know, you might yeah. have an average death rate of nine percent, but buried in there was those older and thinner ewes, uh, which had a much much higher death rate. Yeah. And whereas a little bit of you know the marginal return, a bit of extra feed to those would have been quite significant if you could have got it anywhere near the the mob average or less. Um, oh yeah, if you can do it, if you can. If do you it. can, yeah. No, it's easy to to talk about, but you know the the incentive to do it is pretty high, fifteen to seventeen percent dead or missing. So that and um, did that very much. I mean, that that was what you found as overall across your study. Was there much variation between farms? Were some getting away with it and some not, or is it pretty consistent? It was pretty consistent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. So here's one where we can talk a, a bit of a blanket statement. Alrighty. Hey, look. Um, just to tie it back, one of the other things too on impact on that body condition score ties in with what we were talking about at the start, um, usability to tolerate 
internal parasite challenge. So is that one of the compounding factors leading to that death or missing rate? Yeah, now the the internal parasite thing's really interesting because it's actually very uncommon for internal parasites per se to be the primary cause mm -hmm. of a mixed age ewe being thin. Um, and that, that's been demonstrated really well by work done both with uh, Massey and Ag Research. Um, that's very clear. Um, but ewes that are thin for whatever reason, whether it be underfeeding, um, you know, might have a bit of liver damage from facial eczema or a little bit of viral pneumonia or whatever, um, they will often respond to a drench treatment when they're under worm challenge. Um, mm -hmm. So so will the fat ewes. Um, mm -hmm. they, they'll, they'll all respond round about the same. And uh, the, the work that Ag Research did uh, on the pre-lamb stuff was very clear about that. Um, mm -hmm. And there's some other work floating around too that shows that fat ewes and skinny ewes in general respond the same in terms of uh, better live weight. Um, or other production indices to worm treatment. So in our tail end ewe study, the light ewes that the farmers drenched lost less body weight um, mm -hmm. than the light ewes that were left undrenched. Um, so that was still, um, you know, in their favour to, to lose less weight through the winter. Um, and, and it was in the order of two or three kilos. So, um, you know, two or three kilos extra weight, that's sort of not quite half a condition score. Um, that's still helpful. So yeah. those light ewes, um, if the information says that they're under worm challenge, which for a lot of our farms, you know, more lambs carried through the autumn, um, grazing down low and, um, you know, ewes getting light, um, Yes, of course, worm challenge will be significant. So don't leave that unattended. Yeah. But get some, get some good advice. Yeah, but it was a uh, it, it it slowed the rate of loss as well. It, it wasn't yeah you weren't getting a condition score in a, in a drenching can for example. It slowed the rate of loss, but it by itself wasn't suddenly putting those use that extra half a condition score or something that we were talking about before is what we really need to achieve. Yeah, that's a great line yeah well you can't get a condition score in a drench drum that's right <laughs> yeah you know I, I just it's one of those things we've noticed you know it will help it will slow the decline but it's not going to uh, resolve the issue as itself because often what you're sort of saying there the internal parasites are a symptom of the poor condition and other ill thrift issues rather than the cause of it directly yes Yes, yep. and I mean, you know, that's been well demonstrated with work in the pre-lamb period that, um, you know, the big responses to uh, pre-lamb treatments come when used uh, under conditions of yep. less than ideal feeding. Yeah. Which is certainly what a, a few of us are facing around the country at the moment. So, hey, look, Jenny, we've sort of, we've covered off the article. As I say, it's linked there in the blurb if you want to go and read in more depth some of what Jenny's talking about. And next week we are going to do part two around uh, cattle and deer. Is there anything else on the, while well, we're on the sheep topic that we've um, missed out or you wanted to address, Jenny? Oh, just the one thing I did have at the end of that article was uh, liver fluke, um, yep. which is very much a sort of a farm by farm and region by region issue. Um, but we typically do see uh, more issues with liver fluke after dry periods as the animals are sort of grazing down more into swamps and wet areas mm -hmm. and picking up that snail that transmits the fluke. So 
rather than just launching in and doing a fluke drench because you think you might need to, if it's not something you'd normally do, um, checking or getting somebody to show you how to check the livers of uh, any cow ewes or dog tuckers that you might be killing um, is, is a good investment because if there's no evidence of fluke there in those light ewes at this time of the year or certainly into May, um, then your likelihood of getting a response to a fluke drench is pretty low. So again, do yeah. a bit of monitoring first before you just launch in. And it's another one where the, the lighter or the cull type ewes are more likely to be susceptible. So if you, you see it in them, they'll be your, your monitor in a way. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All righty. Hey, look, um, I know uh, certainly a lot of people in the Central North Island or, or wider will know you and may contact you directly about this. But as I say, we'll, we'll put the information in the link. So, um, look, Jenny, I know um, yeah, it's an interesting time for all of us being stuck at home, kids at home. But thanks for taking some some time out of your morning or out of your week to A, write the article and then B, out of your morning to, to come on and record a podcast with us. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Jenny. Catch you later. Okay. Thanks. Bye.